0: So, we're in the middle of a series on Colossians, and we're going to do a bit of talking about coffee this morning, so I thought we'd make some coffee as well. This is an AeroPress, if you haven't used an AeroPress before. They're one of my favorites. Um, If you can make sure that everyone on your table gets to see your little, um, have a a, a touch and a smell, the delicious aromas of your um, show-and-tell item, that'd be wonderful. Oh, there you go. Enjoy. Go for God. Excellent. Is everyone familiar with their item? Because you'll be quizzed on it later on. Water and microphones go together really well. In my experience. So we've been talking about a series, um, talking about... Um, the book of Colossians over the last little while. And Colossians was a letter written to a group of people who lived in a city called Colossae, which was on the fringes of the Roman Empire. So early Christianity um, grew up under the shadow of the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire had a policy called the Pax Romana, which promised peace prosperity, and security to all, and all they asked was allegiance to the Roman Empire. All they asked was that you called Caesar Lord, um, and everybody would benefit from the Roman Empire. But as we talked about last week, um, it didn't always work out like this. Not everyone received the same benefits of the Roman Empire, and, uh, uh, so a, a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about some of the people who missed out. So it would be really helpful if, um, if any of you remember anything that was talked about two weeks ago and could talk about some of the people that didn't quite experience the full benefits of the empire. Um, peace and security for all, except if... Who missed out? Women. <laughs> Women, yeah, because they uh, had to bear five children each, at least. Um, and they didn't have the same... They weren't recognised as having the same deliberative faculties as men, uh, and therefore didn't deserve getting um, uh, treated with the same kind of respect or authority. Many of them died, of course, in childbirth, trying to make uh, five, uh, raise five adult children, and sorry, raise five children to adulthood. Um, peace and security for all, except. Just want to yell out. Farmers. Excellent. Farmers. Yeah. Farmers, um, tenant farmers, as um, illustrated in the Zakia story, didn't do so well either. Uh, They had to provide the taxes, um, or everyone did, but uh, they were particularly vulnerable um, because they had had taxes demanded of them. Extraordinary amounts of taxes demanded of them. And if you had a bad season, um, then you couldn't pay your tax bill. And so if the rain didn't come right. The rivers didn't rise. Um, It was too hot or too cold. There's every chance that you would lose the land that you were on. Um, Fortunately, because the Roman Empire was so generous, they let you stay on the land and pay off your debt, Um, essentially working as an indentured servant or a slave. Uh, And you would keep on paying your debt until you were dead because there's no way you could ever pay it off. And now someone else, very rich, owned your land. And so the landowners got richer and richer. Peace and prosperity and security for all, except if you're a woman or a farmer or a slave. Yeah, slaves um, didn't quite get the same freedom and peace. Um, slaves were at the bottom end of the food chain. Some were valued more than others. Um, some of them actually had quite high, high roles, but they had no right to their own life. They could be beaten. They could be raped. They could be treated however um, slave owners wanted them to. And we talked in, um, at the start, if we um, flip to the next slide oh does anyone want a coffee by the way this is a really yummy colombian um filter roasted by um by small batch Tamson would like one there you go you can tell me all about it a little bit later anyone else over from this side maybe because there's be some coffee aromas going around would anyone else over this side like okay here you go harriet welcome to melbourne um The shape of the Roman Empire was this one, which is, um, if you haven't done your um, geometry yet, it's a triangle. Um, And essentially Caesar um, is Lord. He is at the top of the empire and all power and all status and all honor and um, all money uh, flows up to Caesar. And he is responsible for holding the empire together. And then it filters down... throughout the rest of the empire until you reach the kind of, um, the bottom rungs, the slaves, the barbarians, those who lived on the borderlands who didn't particularly get cared for. And there's an entire, um, social, um, hierarchy. There's an entire economic hierarchy that backed all of this up. It was incredibly important, um, to hold the structure of the empire together. You had to have reasons why you were able to treat people so badly. So there was, um, they didn't consider it treating people badly. They treated. They considered it treating them as the gods made them. So um, women, uh, unfortunately, were treated the way they were because the gods made gods made them as women. If they wanted them to make um, to be treated well, the gods would have been, made them as a man. Um, slaves were born into slavery or taken into slavery and were actually considered as almost an inferior species of human. And so it was important to honor the gods by treating them um, poorly and by keeping them in their place, because otherwise, if you um, elevated them above their place, you were fighting against what the gods had fated and set in order. So you needed a justification or a way of um, of making it okay to treat some people as, um, as inhuman. And so the Pax Romana or the Peace of Rome was held up at the point of a sword. If you, if you um, rebelled against the empire, there were, there were roads with rows and rows and rows and rows and rows of crosses. Um, they would go out and conquer... Um, foreign lands and bring back all the leaders and um, the other kings, and they would lead them around in these um, triumphal processions where you'd have um, the the Roman general marching at the front, and all these former kings getting dragged along um, behind them in chains representing their people before often they went to the gladiatorial arena. And so, I actually really need a drink of water, so I'm just going to get one as I talk. Um, And so, the shape of the empire was a triangle is incredibly important that it stayed pointy like that. Otherwise, the whole empire would fall apart. Um, if you started treating everybody equally or started distributing resources equally, um, there wasn't enough to go around. And so it was important that some people had less rights than others. We talked about uh, the Colossian community encountering Jesus and the shape of the kingdom being a circle. And we talked about um, how radically challenging it would have been, um, how many awkward conversations would go on at a table, um, where everyone sat as equals. Can you imagine a, uh, a rich landowner sitting next to a former tenant farmer who had to escape to the city to become a slave so that he could survive and not burden his family? Awkward conversation. Can you imagine a master sitting next to a slave who had possibly just beaten that day, sitting as an equal, uh, sharing a a loaf of bread. Uh, This was unheard of in Roman society. It was absolutely unheard of. It was actually treasonous because if you embrace this practice, the entire Roman Empire could fall apart. Um, We talked about how uh, the catch cry of the empire was uh, Caesar is Lord and how the catch cry of the kingdom is Jesus, the shamed, crucified, equalizing one as Lord, and how controversial that would be. The question we have to ask is, where do we find peace, prosperity, and security? What promises us that now? Um, And Steve talked briefly about this last week, but um, in the promise of globalization, consumerism, and nationalism, Um, we're promised peace Peace, security, and prosperity for all. But the reality of that is it works a little bit like the Roman Empire. Um, Some people have a lot more peace, prosperity, and security than others. And to add some balance to this, um, nationalism, globalization, consumerism, in their own right, they're just ideas. They're actually, there's good bits and there's bad bits. Technology helps us and harms us. We're not wholesale rallying against the way the world works. The world world works the way it works. But what we've been encouraged to do through the book of Colossians is to ask questions about the way the world works. Ask questions about equity. Ask questions about our place in it. Ask questions about if we follow Jesus, what does that mean for our participation in these bigger systems? Um, We can't just flick a switch and make things just. We can't just flick a switch um, and become non-people who don't live um, in nations, who have no contact with globalization, who have no contact with consumerism. Um, these are enmeshed in in, uh, in in our lives, and these are these can be powerfully good systems, as well as powerfully evil. But we just have to ask, what, where are our places in it? So today, uh, over the next few weeks, we're going to ask a few different people to talk about um, their sphere of work or um, something they've got an interest in, um, and talk about how globalization, nationalism, and consumption kind of plays into that. And uh, I work in coffee um, part-time, and I'm going to talk about um, this stuff from the perspective of coffee. So I have always loved coffee. Uh, or at least I've always wanted to love coffee. When I was young, I was obsessed with um, being able to do what grown-ups get to do. And so I was raised um, uh, uh, stealing anchovies and olives and camembert cheese. I remember hating camembert cheese, but grown-ups had it. And so I remember mum would spread jam on it for me, and I'd like gulp down camembert cheese. And she'd ask me if I liked it, knowing it was an acquired taste. And I had to put on my best, like, I'm enjoying the expensive camembert cheese um, Camembert was a bit of a luxury for us I'm enjoying the expensive Camembert cheese face Which is very difficult to put on When you're gagging Trying to get it down But it didn't matter to me Because I really, really wanted to eat What the grown-ups ate I had this obsession with um, with, with being a grown-up I, I think my nickname when I was a kid Was the, the, the little man I was called Because apparently I had really adult language Which was not like, you know, risque That's more me now But didn't adopt that too much later on Um. But I remember coffee. I remember mum and dad, when I was 12, I was allowed a sip of their coffee, which just was so exciting because I'd always, always wanted coffee. I'd go around drinking the ends of wine glasses. And, um, and if, if any coffee got left around, taking some. And when I was 12, I was allowed um, to have like a really, really weak coffee or a sip of mum and dad's, which was just so exciting. And I hated it. It was disgusting, but it was so grown up. I remember one day just going, how could anyone ever like this more than hot chocolate? And it's actually ridiculous. Hot chocolate is so yum and this is so gross, but I really wanted to like it. And I remember when I was 14, I got my first job and the first thing I did with the money I earned from working at New World in the veggie section, produce, if you you ever work at a supermarket, kids, produce is the best by a mile. You're allowed to eat the fruit that falls off, which if you shake anything hard enough, enough fruit falls off. Um, you get to wrap things with a glad wrapping machine, and that is just awesome. Um, yeah, definitely work in produce. But I remember getting my first pay packet and going to Ronnie's Cafe in Matamata in New Zealand. And uh, what a cafe... Do you know Ronnie's Cafe? Oh, you are a cultured lad, aren't you? Um, Ronnie's Cafe, which was like... <laughs> a very, very disreputable cafe for many, many reasons, including some vicious rumors about Ronnie, the owner. Um, <laughs> which if you ask me privately, I'll <laughs> tell you about later. Um, but I remember going to Ronnie's cafe with my friend. We were both like 14 and pimply as and going there thinking we were like, might as well have had like top hats and tuxedos because we were like going to get our first coffee that we bought with our own money. We were so fancy. And the the squill would have been just absolutely An abomination. Um, But I was so excited for it. And I I developed, I made myself develop a taste for coffee um, to the point where it um, it became an obsession. So about four years ago, uh, when I moved over here, I wanted a bit of a change of scenery, so I decided to get into the coffee industry. I'd already uh, I got a a coffee machine for my uh, 21st birthday, which I thought was phenomenal, which was actually terrible. Um, And then I bought another one a few years later with my own money. And and I had friends who worked in Australia as baristas. How fancy! Uh, In New Zealand, you have you have cafe workers, and in Australia, you have baristas. And so they may as well have had a top hat and tails. Um, And and I I bludge lessons off them. I bully them into giving me lessons, and I got good enough to kind of doing an all right job at home. And then I moved over here, and I thought, oh, I'm going to get into coffee full time, which I was very excited about, but I was also very, very nervous, because um, I just accidentally read something, which I really shouldn't have read, which I also left in my bag. There's this book here, it's called um, it's called Black Gold, and it's a book by, by um, a guy called Anthony Wilde. If you're going to be an author, you can't be called Anthony. You have to be Anthony to be a little bit fancier. Uh, But he wrote a a book on the dark history of coffee. And uh, what I learned through this process was that coffee was an incredibly, incredibly um, uh, uh, difficult industry in in terms of trade. It has a very, very dark, dark history. Um, I'll give you a tiny bit of background on that. We're actually going to talk about the thing behind the thing, but we'll talk about the thing first. Coffee's got an unbelievably dark history. Um, as one of the world's most traded commodities, the size of the system required to get all the coffee required for 500 billion cups of coffee a year is absolutely enormous. So coffee is grown on farms and little cherries, which have got seeds, which we see as coffee beans, two of them per one and you need a whole bunch of them, you need like a fistful of them to make a cup of coffee, 500 billion cups drunk every year. That's a lot of things. The system it takes to get enough coffee from farms to 500 billion cups is absolutely enormous, which makes it almost invisible because it's so large. Added to that fact, the vast majority of coffee is grown in countries at the lower end of the economic scale and shipped off to countries at the higher end of the economic scale, far, far richer with a lot more power. Added to that, the way most coffee is processed, it's roasted incredibly dark um, to the point that any kind of profile about the, the place and particularity of that place is eliminated from the coffee. So as much as there's enormous, enormous marketing machine behind coffee um, about uh, exactly what instant coffee blend tastes like what and there's all this like suggest- power of suggestion put into it, um, coffee roasted that dark is just coffee. Um, it any, any trace of place and where it came from is just about wiped out from what you're actually drinking. And for the, for the vast majority of the world, even though we think we've got all these um, preferences and flavor profile, it doesn't actually really matter where the coffee comes from as long as it is, in fact, coffee. Um, and as long as it's cheap. This produces an effect that Anthony Wilde calls um, the race to the bottom. So how it works is essentially there's um, there's... Uh, farmers who are farming coffee, um, trying to funnel it into this massive system, and then you've got um, buyers like Nescafe who buy through the um, the commodities market, the New York C Stock Exchange um, commodities market, and they don't really care where their coffee comes from. They just need coffee really, really cheap, um, and so they they've got exporters in countries who will go and buy crops of farmers at the lowest possible price. Um, uh, un- unfortunately for the farmers is <laughs> they aren't really needed. That farmer isn't needed. If one crop worth of coffee doesn't get to the commodities market to make 500 billion cups of coffee, no one cares. No one cares. So they have just such minimal ability to actually bargain for what, their, what price they get paid for their coffee. So it becomes a race to the bottom. Essentially, um, whoever can make it the cheapest is what gets bought. And if a farmer, um, if, it, if, if if the market is such that there's more coffee than supply at that point in time, um, the exporter will say, I'll pay you this much. And the farmer says, that's actually less than what it costs to make the product. And the exporter goes, do you want to sell it or don't you? Do you want nothing or not much? And the farmer has to say, not much. And they will sell their coffee at below what they actually make it for that year. And then you get... Um, international trade policies, you get uh, all all kinds of crazy things. Vietnam um, is a a classic case where America napalmed Vietnam into oblivion and then decided at the end, whoopsie daisies, we should help them, and so just planted most of Vietnam in coffee, which is great for Vietnam and really, really bad for everyone else already growing coffee. Because suddenly you've got a, a flooded market, and so the people in Colombia and the people in Ethiopia and the people everywhere else um, are, are stuffed. So the farmers are at the mercy of the coffee exporters. The issue from the consumer end is this: coffee is coffee. This, this is this is coffee. Look at it. This is coffee. This. This is coffee. They're both coffee. This comes in a packet. What's that? Oh, podcast people. I'm holding up a coffee pod and then some stuff from Brazil roasted by um, Small Bitch. Actually, this one's by Seven Seeds Roastery. Um, you're going to find it hard to follow along if you should just come. Um, <laughs> that's another option. Um, I did. I made it. No, I'm kidding. We love you, podcasters. Um, this dropped out of the sky onto our shelves and has a price tag attached. This dropped out of the sky onto our shelves and has a price tag attached. Here's your homework. I want you to look at your, the coffee that you have and I want you to tell me everything about the person who made it. So have a look at your coffee that you've got on your table. If you, if you did your job before and got followed instructions, you'll have some on your table somewhere. I want you to tell me everything you can about where it came from and who made it. Did you not get any? E? Um, yeah, you can come up here. Um, it 's not table service as i 've explained this is a this is a community There you go excuse me mine 's not hot enough um. okay so who 's got a who 's got a who 's got one of the little pods yeah okay what what can you tell me about this coffee and where it came from? Presumably it is from Italy. Perhaps the packaging was made in China. Maybe it's from Chittaly. Maybe it's from Chittaly. It's not from Italy. Italy doesn't grow coffee. It's, it, it says Italian on there because you think Italians know about coffee. They don't. But anyway. Um, <laughs> um, okay, so you don't know the name of the person who picked it or the person who processed it or the person who exported it um nescafe decaf people blend 43 where did blend 43 come from tamsin loves this one yeah i'm very sad about this piece of this coffee in front of me um i don't know we decided that maybe they'd have a happy life because there's a picture of some really pretty kind of garden on the back so we think there's a picture of a pretty garden on the back so it came from somewhere really pretty and lovely excellent um who's got one of the small batch seven seeds one amy baratta Or your table representative. Um, This has got heaps of details about who made it. It's a woman called... Adilma. Adilma. And she works tirelessly, apparently. And she's taken it over, the farm over, from her 90-year-old father. Yeah, it's a lot of detail on the back. Cool. That one's from Columbia. Um, So this is the issue for us as consumers, is that for the most part, coffee falls out of the sky, and we don't see any of this. Triangle. Next slide. (laughs) We don't see any of this. Sorry, next one. This stuff. These are people um, picking coffee. This is what coffee looks like before it becomes that pod. It's actually grown on a tree, and it's actually a cherry. And that, there's about like eight different ways of processing that, which will profoundly change the flavor. This, and this is how, what happens to most coffee, is hand sorting. Those cherries provide two little beans each, which are actually seeds. And women, nearly always women, work 10 to 16 hours a day in these little hothouses in different parts of the world hand-picking out defects, defective beans. In fact, we've got a little, there's a really, I'll show you a fancy end of the scale. I think this is Columbia. This is like a really, really high end coffee processing. So they're spotting and picking out defects, beans with blemishes on them. And they'll do that for hour after hour after hour after hour after hour. That's not bad. That's good. It's trade. It's work. But if you don't get paid enough to feed your family off that, it's bad. It's really, really, really bad. The problem with this is this is a person. Someone picked a cherry, sun-dried it, burned all the stuff of the outside off, dried it again, put it in a pile with thousands and millions of others, hand-sorted it, carried it somewhere, and then sold it off. This is a whole bunch of people in here, and we know absolutely nothing about them. And the problem from our end is that we go to a supermarket and we see $3.67, $2.59, $8.13. What? That's ridiculous. $2.67. The other problem is, is there's nothing to say that the $2.67 one is actually getting more money to the person who picked it than the $8 one. So the question behind the question, well, one of the slogans of our empire, if we go back a couple of slides, is cheaper is better. Down, down, prices are down. Up to 70% off. Get more bang for your buck. Again, No one wants to pay more money. No one wants to get ripped off, and that's okay. But we have to ask questions of the slogans of empire. They're not necessarily wrong, but we have to ask questions of them, such as cheaper is better for who? And how cheap is too cheap? This sounds just like economics. but it's not. It's Christianity. Because the question behind the question for us is who is behind this? And what is happening to them? Part of the process of globalization is a thing called dehumanization, where we lose connection with where our stuff's coming from. Whereas once upon a time, in a village context, you had you had to look someone in the eyes that you were paying or ripping off. Now we don't even get to do that. And again, it's the way the world works at the moment. And there's advantages and disadvantages of that. But as Christians, right throughout Scripture, there's this push for humanization. This push for recognizing people. This push for asking questions of really, really big systems. Empire hasn't disappeared in our world, it's just evolved. People become invisible, so we see a product and not a person. We don't know how it's produced. I, in all my years of coffee, I tell people every day that coffee actually comes from a little fruit, and people are astounded, because i have never thought about it before. We don't know who is selling what or what their circumstances are. We become familiar with products and taglines, but not people. Engagement is incredibly inconvenient. And that's not necessarily intentional, but that's just the way the system works. To find out more is so, so difficult and so, so time-consuming. And in a culture, again, that values efficiency, once again, efficiency isn't bad, but at what cost? It's incredibly difficult to find out who picked this and what's happened to them. And so as Christians, we've got to ask questions about how we participate in the system. Economic exploitation is bad, and we know it, but there's something directly behind that that the gospel addresses, and that's dehumanization. The devaluing of a person and a failure to recognize them as the beloved of God, which then justifies otherwise unjustifiable actions against them. The story of Zacchaeus is actually A story of economics. And it's a story of sociology. And it's a story of salvation. And it's a story of the gospel. Jesus somehow, in that moment, manages to connect profoundly, and probably fair enough, (laughs) rightly disconnected people. As we talked about in the stories, the the early church would have had some incredibly awkward meals. When Paul asks Philemon to take Onesimus, his runaway slave, back as a brother, that would have just dropped like a bombshell. When a master sits next to a slave and for the first time ever actually asks what his experience is like, awkward conversation. As soon as you start recognizing everybody as human, the pyramid gets really, really difficult to live in. And this is what the gospel, this is what the gospel does. Right relationship with God reflected in right relationship with each other. This is not just left-wing socialist agendas. This is the core of the gospel, humanization, that God says that each and every one of you is loved and should be treated as equals and considered and cared for and not have your dignity taken away. If we can flick to the verse from Colossians. In this life, in this new life, it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbaric, uncivilized, slave or free, Christ is all that matters and lives within us. Paul dropped that line into a community that lived in a pyramid world, that had every good reason to be separate from each other, and said, sit down at a meal together and eat, and look at each other in the eyes as humans, and ask what you're doing to each other. That is salvation. Jesus came to make us all equal. Each of those titles is a reason to be separated. Jews turning away Gentiles because they were impure. For some of them, it would have been the first time they'd ever shared a meal with a non-Jew. Can you imagine the system shock? Each of these labels carries some identity and meaning and beauty. But the flip side of it is that each of those labels has been used to exclude and abuse and shut out. And so the early church were confronted with this question of how do we live under the shadow of empire? What is our response How do we do it in a way where we won't get killed? How far does this go? What are the limits? And even though we're talking about coffee this morning, we're talking about something much, much deeper. For us as a church, the question that we have to ask just like the Colossians is, where are the people behind the systems and what's happening to them? And there's no easy answers. It's complex, it's hard, it's difficult, it's a pain. There's stuff that we don't want to know. There's documentaries that I still won't watch because <laughs> if I watch them, then I know have <laughs> to change some things. It's overwhelming, it's exhausting. And I honestly think it's what Jesus called us to. Christ is all that matters and he lives in all of us. And because he lives in all of us, we have to ask questions about how we treat each other, even if the other is really, really, really far away. I just want to wrap up in just a second. We're going to do a little bit of prayer. But if we flick to the next side, I just want to say, um, what I found, I was in, so nervous about coming to the coffee industry because I thought I'd probably have to leave it because I wouldn't be able to work within it because of the abuse that goes on within it. What I surprisingly found in Melbourne coffee was this: a whole bunch of other people who deeply, deeply cared and recognised the the size of the system they work with them, but fought and fought and fought to try and find ways around it. There's a whole bunch of different ways in which people are approaching this fair trade. Um, they're all flawed. They've all got their holes, but they're all better. They're all better than not thinking about it. Fair trade is a really, really good one. It's not perfect. It's got its holes. As an economic system, there's some gaps in it, but it's good. Direct trade again has got holes in it, um, but I really, I, I'm a massive fan of it. This is a guy Tim windowbow from um, from Denmark. He publishes every year his what he calls a transparency report, and says this is what I pay for every pound of coffee. And these are the systems that I put in place. And what's amazing is that what's behind this is this biblical idea called covenant. Our issue is one of our issues is that we have no sense of covenant. There's these, all of these products which which source all of the stuff from all of these places who we have no connection to, and so we're actually changing where we buy from all the time depending on who's willing to sell this stuff off the cheapest. Um, direct trade actually has a sense of covenant to it, where um, people say. I will keep on buying your stuff as long as you work out a way of keeping the quality up. And I'll help work with you to put technology in there and systems in there to help you keep the quality up. And I'll pay you above market price for it. And I'll, I'll actually covenant with you. We'll we'll invest and keep investing in your farm and your people so that you can keep on producing a better and better product that you can get more and more money from. So we'll pay you this base price, which is above Market value, but then if your coffee is actually better because of the way that you look after it and what you grow, will pay you above above that. And this is what Tim Wendelboe is doing. So this is every year. This is every K, every kg of coffee he bought and how much he paid for it. As you can see, there's some um, Esmeralda Panama Esmeralda Geisha on there for fifty US dollars a pound, which is um <laughs> yeah, which is quite a bit when um, the average the um, sea market at the moment for the last thirty years. For the last 30 years, the average price of coffee is between $1.30 and $1.60 a pound. Imagine getting paid what you got paid 30 years ago. So it's actually a story of hope that as difficult as it is, if we as Christians ask questions, that we can actually make ground. If we can work against a dehumanizing system, we can actually turn it into something really beautiful. Trade, trade really matters. One of the incredible things about coffee is that most of the richest countries in the world can't grow it. (laughs) So they have to pay money for it. And it's most of the richest uh, countries in the world that pay money for coffee. And in that sense, it's an absolute blessing and a gift because there's a chance. (laughs) Because trade is actually really, really important and really, really matters. And if we've got a chance of making trade good for the people behind it, then man, let's take that and let's ask that question of who is behind this thing sitting on my table. And it's not just coffee, it goes into everything. And I know this is incredibly overwhelming, but I think it's a question that we've got to keep asking as Christians because economics, (laughs) it's a part of people. There's people behind these things. I just want you to hold... (laughs) or get close to, if you need a few extra of them, your bit of coffee. If you've got beans, I'm going to grind them up later (laughs) if you've got those nice ones. So you can touch them, um, but don't put them up your nose because I still want to drink it. Grab your coffee, or at least put it in a shared space where you can each look at it. I just want you to spend a few minutes as a community and just pray. You can pray by yourself or at your table, whatever you'd like to do. Pray for the person or the group of people that actually took this off a tree. Ask God to be present with them. Ask that their needs be met. Ask that we would find a way of seeing them as human. Let's pray for our producers, even those of you who don't drink coffee. Loving God, seer of the unseen. We thank you that you have called us to be people of hope. Lord, let us not despair and give up. Let us not ignore, but fuel us with hope. That that question that you ask us of who. Who Who are the people? And how do we, how do we love them from afar? And I pray that as a community, as individuals and as a group, we might be people of hope who don't despair and give up and say that the world is just this way, but they would say that Jesus has called us to a different way to do the hard work of slowing down sometimes, to ask the question of who sits behind the stuff that we buy. We thank you for innovation in this world. We thank you for new ways, alternate economies, new systems that make it accessible to see justice come about, to love people that we don't even know let us be people of hope. That your church would lead the way and singing across the table from people we've been separated from. That just like the Colossian community who had to look each other in the eyes and ask some really hard questions, that would all grow in your grace and your love as we begin to see that in Christ, everyone is human. In Jesus' name. Amen. Um, if you want to talk more about some of this stuff, there's lots of people in our community who are good um, with these kinds of things. Greg Modlin um, uh, is, has done a lot of work with fair trade. Um, that's Greg over there. Can you put your hand up? Thanks. He's <laughs> uh, done a lo- lot of work with fair trade over the years. Um, I've done a fair bit of work with direct trade. Um, Beth and a whole bunch of others and Joel. Um, I don't know how up with coffee jollers, but, um, they've all spent, (laughs) he's, he's a gun, um, (laughs) he loves a skinny cappuccino, um, yeah, lots of people in our community work much more closely than this, with this stuff than me, but, um, so there's lots of people to, to talk to, but yeah, I'd really encourage you this week to, to ask good questions, and, um, go in peace, see people everywhere, um, acknowledge them and love them. Jackie, uh, Oh yeah, no, I was telling you and I forgot completely about communion. Um, Cheers, somebody, with your communion this morning. Look them in the eyes as a human. Let's eat and drink together. Cheers, Alistair. Thank you, Jesus, for your blood and your body. Thank you for the meal that brings people together. Let it continue to challenge us. Even if we're only drinking juice and crackers, let it be a symbol of something so, so much deeper that runs throughout our lives. Amen. And now you may actually go in peace.